Welcome to the Christopher Peter Review. The Christopher Peter Review provides original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Now, without any further delay, here is Christopher Peter to begin your experience with the Christopher Peter Review. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast today. Hope all is well. Many of us believe that we make every choice in our lives based on rational decision-making, a thorough evaluation process, or comparison of the costs and benefits. In reality, we are highly susceptible to marketing campaigns, whether we are consciously aware of it or subconsciously exposed to it. For example, I want you to take a moment and think of your favorite place to grab a cup of coffee. Is it Starbucks? Is it Dunkin' Donuts? Or maybe it is a regional chain or local spot. The most commonly frequented places are Starbucks and Dunkin' Right? Many people go to Starbucks because of the brand image and messaging we have been exposed to on television, radio, or internet-based ads. Largely influenced by the ecosystem of Starbucks users who become unpaid brand ambassadors for the coffee giant. People who swear that Starbucks makes the best coffee. The best experience. Or an essential part of a successful climb of the corporate ladder. The Starbucks Cup associates career success. There are many movies and shows where you see people in corporate boardrooms with the famous cup in front of them. Perfect product placement and association. If there are any producers that want to play the Christopher Peter Review podcast in the background of their show or movie, preferably a business or political themed one, please do so. In all seriousness, this is why you see products in certain movies. Also, when you see everyday people emulating this as well, then you have a really effective marketing plan. The people we know and interact with are ones that typically confirm our decision to accept or reject brands or products. I notice people who want to appear on the upward career track do not want to be seen with a Dunkin' cup. Because Dunkin' is the brand of the working class. But, they do not mind helping themselves to donuts when available. Because who can turn down a donut? Not anyone I want to meet. Personally, I tend to patronize Dunkin' more than Starbucks because of convenience at times. I feel like there are more Dunkin' Donuts outside of cities that have ample seating to work out of than Starbucks, which is more prevalent in city environments. But I do not mind a stop at Starbucks in the city. We do not always patronize brands because of product qualities. Usually, we are not expert enough to truly distinguish quality unless it is quite obvious. A luxury branded product is usually noticeably better material than a product from a value brand. People will pay for the brand name, but producers do want to justify that brand name with a somewhat noticeable difference. For instance, you can tell the difference between a car sold by Mercedes or BMW than a car made by Kia. There are many nice Kia cars nowadays, but there still is a clear difference in production quality, standard features, reliability, and service to justify the gap in price. In some cases, competing brands are hard to make a substantive difference, although we may pretend to. The preference for Coke or Pepsi really comes down to one's preference for sweetness or fizzness. People who like sweeter things prefer Pepsi, people who like non-flat soda within a 10-minute period will prefer Coke. Everything around is impacted by marketing. At your job, your boss, department head, division leader, and so on will market to you and the rest of your colleagues reasons that you should remain loyal or message that loyalty is somehow more valuable than maximizing your true value. The catch is they want a stable team without turnover. Our politics involves a great level of marketing. How we perceive issues is greatly impacted by how the news media of your choice markets their content. Remember news is a business first. Like professional wrestling, they need to get an emotional reaction out of the audience to keep ratings up and interest in what's next. Our candidates carefully vet what they say in speeches, what their teams air on commercials, and what social media channels put out on the internet. Usually carefully scripted, 
polled, and crafted to present a manicured image of the candidate. Consider how many people are fascinated by the lure of New York City. In reality, our largest city is filled with a homelessness problem that is unmanaged, crime that is getting out of control, and the perpetual smell of human urine and feces. While there are many positives about New York City, it does not live up to the billing. We must also remember that the I Love New York theme was a marketing campaign to change the global perception of the city. Focus on the positive, while coordinating how the local media, politicians, and people speak about the city. Similar to what we see with the national advertising campaign that is being done to promote Chicago and Illinois. Marketing is how we attempt to position ourselves for new jobs, promotions, or connect with people who could advance our careers, serve a need, or partner for life. Marketing is how we convince others that we are friendly, trustworthy, or good people. Or how we do the opposite sometimes without even knowing it. To some degree, we do need to take a step back and ensure that we are making choices that reflect our true needs, wants, and values. Are we buying products because at one time they did align with who we are as people? Do they still align or have they shifted or reaffirmed? Are we buying products that best serve our needs, wants, and values or are there ones that better meet our criteria for purchase? I try not to be brand specific for many things. Not perfect, I do have my preferred brands for some products. Even with those preferred products and service providers, I do try to evaluate the market for these brands to see whether they still meet my needs or are still positioned where I believe them to be. All too often we see brands use marketing campaigns to cover for quality issues that they simply do not want to fix. So it is important to look beyond the marketing and understand the operating results and market performance. Sometimes it is not easy. We are human. We want what we want. Right. We do the research, get confused and go right back to our comfort zones. Usually there are other factors that make us rethink our brand choices. Look at Bud Light's demise. The once top-selling beer in America created its own decline by a controversial marketing campaign, where they pushed away their customer base. Brands usually operate on the principle that current customers are more valuable than new ones because the acquisition cost of new customers is high. The worst outcome is that you target a new customer base that does not want to connect while alienating your current customer base and you come away with neither. That is what Bud Light is experiencing right now. New marketing campaigns are not working either to win back the customers. We see this with businesses that are caught doing bad things or make catastrophic mistakes. When a company loses a high-profile lawsuit that threatens their integrity, it makes people question whether to continue their association with their products and services. Once that gap or moment of clarity occurs, I do not believe that thematic marketing campaigns are effective. That is usually when people want to hear from the leadership to acknowledge their error, atone for it by rectifying the impact, or make a rational defense of why it was actually a problem caused by them or why the public may be overreacting. Otherwise, customers will reevaluate their market baskets. For Bud Light, I do not think the original customer base feels the brand leadership is doing enough and it seems like Bud Light will no longer be the top beer in America. Some wounds do not heal fast. Interesting to see right in front of us. For many brands, the goal is to connect with customers and become the easy default choice in their life. Do not rethink it. Competing brands want to cause points of disruption to make you reassess that choice. So it is interesting when brands make mistakes and do the work for their competitors. Modelo's is probably appreciating the new business and new position in the market. Miller Lite is probably seeing some benefits as well. All without the cost of customer acquisition or making the argument of why their products better fit the lives of the Bud Light drinkers. I think the important takeaway from this segment is that we are constantly surrounded by marketing by brands, people, and the world around us. Everything we do and experience is probably impacted by marketing. Our economic and personal outcomes are impacted by how well we market ourselves.
Personal marketing matters. We want the people that we report to value our contributions and understand that we are prepared to do more and make greater impacts to the company. We want people to value us and our opinions. That is why we manicure our social media feeds in the manner we do. Most people do not talk about their failures, struggles, or adversity. Social media is about celebrations with family, friends, and those close to us. We control the narrative of our lives and want to manage how others perceive us. That is how we market. When we want a promotion or raise, we do not shed light on how many emails we overlooked, times we did not achieve our goals, or did not give our best efforts. We focus on the positive and try to counter the negatives. That is how we use marketing to our favor. Marketing is important. It is how brands communicate, how political organizations message, charities garner support, and how we ask for what we want and need. It is all marketing. Now, let us discuss what is happening in our sports and entertainment environment. A tough week for sports fans in the city of Miami. In a matter of 24 hours, Miami sports fans saw their Miami Heat succumb to the Denver Nuggets to end their chances in the NBA Finals and then saw their Florida Panthers get blown out of the Stanley Cup Finals losing 9 goals to 3. If any sports fans understand their frustration, it would be us Philly fans who saw our Phillies lose the World Series then saw our Eagles lose a close Super Bowl a few months later. But Philly fans and Miami fans will realize that making it to the championship is a good thing and reflective of a great season, despite not achieving the ultimate goal. Both Miami teams were not among the favorites to even make an appearance in the NBA Finals or the Stanley Cup Finals. They were not the top seeds in the respective conferences in their respective leagues. They had rosters that the sports pundits felt were less formidable than the opponents they were facing. So we can appreciate their successes in overcoming the odds although they did not cross the finish line. I think we overvalue the odds we see coming from sports betting. The odds are interesting to watch and see. But some networks treat the data as gospel, when the picks rarely pan out when you look at the preseason picks and the eventual champion. The Buffalo Bills were supposed to win the Super Bowl. They did not even make the AFC Championship game. A lot can happen throughout the course of a season to make those odds appear outrageous. I get it. I do like seeing the odds shift week to week but I do feel that these organizations should feature reporting and journalism more than gambling sentiments. Much of sports talk nowadays is predictions. People want to be on record predicting who will win championships, who will win most valuable player awards, who will move where in free agency, and who will be released, fired, or traded. Even with the presence of new data, information, or reporting, many of these personalities will hold true to the predictions rather than update their views in the presence of new data. To their credit, gamblers do. The interesting prediction I heard from some basketball analyst was the prediction the game of basketball will be forever changed by the Denver Nuggets and their Nikola Jokic. Jokic is a tremendous player, although I believe and still believe Embiid deserved the MVP award over him this year and last. I love his Jokic personality and what he brings to not only basketball, but to sports and perspective of life. But did he change the game in the same manner as Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors? A trend in sports is that people mimic the success they see. That is true in life as well. For instance, if you see someone get promoted doing their job a certain way, then that signals that your higher-ups must want you to do the same. If something wins a team a championship then it must be replicated if your team wants to win a championship. But that does not always work out. The Golden State Warriors changed the game of basketball because they broke the norm and decided that a team should take more threes in a game because three-pointers are worth more than two-pointers and dunks and one can reasonably project that even with a lower success rate of three-point shooting compared to two-point shots attempts, a team will score more points when all at the end of the game. They were right. With elite three-point shooters in Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, they effectively outscored teams at will.
Even during nights where they were not playing up to their norm, they still generated a fence at a level to ensure they were in every game. The result of their experiment is four championships in six trips to the finals. Not a bad way to confirm a theory. Of course, if they did not enjoy that level of success, you would not see every team reigning threes like their lives depended on it. Other teams thought their path to success was to mimic what they saw the Warriors do. Yet, only the Warriors enjoyed sustained success as others tried to establish what they already mastered. The next evolution is expected to be a center that plays like a guard. Who can shoot threes as effectively as Jokic makes it look. And the NBA has three big men that can do that with two already winning a title. Jokic, Giannis, and Embiid. So there is credibility in that projection. In order for it to be further cemented either the first two need to win a second title soon or my Sixers need to end the drought and capture the long-awaited title. This is the first time in the NBA that there is really parity in the league. For quite some time, there was a super team that dominated their respective conferences. Four straight years we saw the Cleveland Cavaliers compete against the Golden State Warriors, which was preceded by two years of the Miami Heat and San Antonio Spurs finals, part of four finals appearances by the Heat. Dynasties are a thing in every league. But basketball seems to have more than their fair share, even if the dynasty team makes the finals and does not win it. So, if there really is a change in how basketball is going to be played we have to see if Golden State just does not restart their winning ways by adding number 5 and 6. Or does LeBron capture number 5 with a return of his dominant style and how he prefers his teams to play? There is a possibility that this is just a lull in the history of the sport. Or maybe a real monumental shift in how the game is played. That is what makes sports so fun is that to find out we have to enjoy the ride. Welcome to the CRC Conversation on the Christopher Peter Review, where we discuss leading current events impacting our public policy and the happenings in our political system. I want us to discuss an important topic in our conversation this week and that is homelessness in America. Homelessness continues to be a problem in many of our large cities and now expanding to other communities as well. This is not a new problem. Homelessness has been a problem well before many of us were even born. In many cities, like New York City, Philadelphia, and others, people are used to seeing the homeless, stepping over them when they block walking paths. Out west, we have seen news stories about the homeless tent communities, where public officials in cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles, needed to deconstruct massive structures. We have never adequately answered the question of how to address homelessness, and how society can save these individuals. Republicans, Democrats, progressives, or conservatives have failed to effectively address homelessness. Some just keep it out of the public view better than others. How can we do better in the present moment? The out-of-sight out-of-mind approach does not really solve the problem. That approach just mitigates some of the surrounding issues homelessness causes in America, like public urination and defecation, crime, and disorderly conduct that can drive away tourists and their spending. People may be sympathetic but most people do not want to see the problem firsthand. That is why many donate to charity rather than volunteer. The knee-jerk solutions have not really worked out well. You cannot just round them up and push them out of high traffic areas. They still do not have any place to go. When you create more homeless people than you help, you run out of places to hide them, which is why we are seeing them more and more. The real need is to figure out how to effectively and efficiently mitigate homelessness. It might not be a problem that we can completely rid society of. But maybe we can reduce it but we need to address the factors that cause homelessness. I have heard so many different theories about why homelessness exists. A person tried to convince me that homelessness could be solved if some places would stop shipping unwanted people to cities like New York or Los Angeles. Keep in mind this was well before the whole shipping of illegal immigrants throughout the country. 
There are more rational reasons why people end up homeless and remain homeless. The prevailing reasons are drug addiction and mental illness. Other factors like financial strife without a support system also creates homelessness. Not sure that we can do anything about a supposed transfer of unwanted people to these cities. But maybe do something about drug addiction and mental illness if we really wanted to. But we have yet to adequately eradicate drug addiction or effectively address mental health as well. So this whole movement of legalizing drugs and making them more available is probably not a good thing for society. Right? Finding rational solutions to problems is something we struggle with in society. Addiction is something we should take more seriously. It is a problem that impacts people of all demographics, all walks of life, regardless of whether one is rich, poor, educated, or uneducated. Lifestyle choices may have unintended consequences. There are many problems besides homelessness that are caused by drug addiction. Crime in our communities is largely driven by people under the influence of a drug or in the pursuit of funds to purchase their next fix. For some time now, the left wants America to scale back efforts to turn Americans away from drugs. Radical left-wing politicians want the federal and state governments to legalize drugs and then increase treatment centers, which is counterintuitive. We know we cannot and probably should not jail every addict. So, what makes one think that we can run enough facilities to treat every addict if you make drugs more readily available? And how many times do we treat the same repeat addicts? Obviously the proposed solution will not solve our drug problem. Just like incarcerating users has not. We need people to willingly turn away from drug use. Stop normalizing it. We see it glorified in movies, music, and other art forms. Many times by people who are not real users and not willing to be accountable for the addicts they may inspire by their art choice. I think we need to continue publicly opposing drug abuse. To some degree efforts to turn people away from drugs is working, as surveyed teens show lower levels of drug use as well as lower levels of smoking, which is a good sign. Many are not even trying them. Now we all may hold doubts about the accuracy of survey data, as some of the teens may respond in a manner they believe the surveyor wants them to or if they feel like responses will get them in trouble. But I am sure there are multiple efforts to ensure the results are consistent. I wonder if technology is also improving the situation as well. You can see videos of what addiction looks like, the effects of addiction, and how it impacts families, friends, and those around them. Many people are influenced by not wanting to be the people they see in content, which is a helpful deterrent. Even if you do not overdose, you may end up on the streets, as you struggle to hold a job or function as a normal human being. The positive is that we might be able to prevent future generations from making the same mistakes but we have to be cautious that they might start later in life than in their teens. Mental illness is another problem that we have struggled to address as well. We continue to see tragic events resulting from mental illness, which have led to the loss of life. Some of the homeless might not be in the mental state to understand possible help available or social services they can seek. One challenge that exists with treating the homeless is being able to locate them as they may not be in the same location. If they miss appointments or need a visit, people trying to help may not be able to find them. How can we better address the mental health aspect for our homeless? I am neither a mental health expert nor an addiction expert. But from my experience on the business side of a large health system, I heard of a practice in providing care or follow-up medication for homeless patients was for providers to ask patients for common hangouts or to have patients come back to the hospital. Unfortunately, you still have issues with no-shows or loss of contact and I can assume much higher rates for mental health-related treatment for those with severe mental health issues. People who need help but are still completely functional probably you will have more success with. But not an easier answer. 
The real aspect or issue that I think is worth debating is whether institutionalizing some of these individuals is beneficial to their well-being rather than roaming the streets. Many of these individuals might be better served in an institution. Potentially being harmed or harming others. Not a free solution though. Do we return to an era of mass institutionalization? And how do we ensure that we are just not using facilities as the new incarceration? How many can be rehabilitated and re-enter society as stable citizens? Those are questions better answered by those in power. But I think these are questions we should be asking. Not just looking away when we see the clear need. No solution would be free of cost. But the government has shown the ability to find funds to serve the needs of non-citizens. Consider how much money is being spent on housing, transporting, tracking, and shielding all these illegal immigrants around the nation. This is money that could be used to improve our approach to housing the American homeless. Some cities are renovating abandoned buildings to house illegals, when they never even thought of doing this to the same extent to address the homeless that they step over on their way inside their offices. Money spent to aid and abet those violating our federal laws. Rather than helping our citizens who are in need of assistance. We also should consider that there are veterans, who served in the armed forces and returned home with mental health issues that were never adequately treated, who are among the homeless population. They deserve better. Sometimes you need to choose where to start to solve a problem. And I believe that ensuring that none of our veterans are homeless is a good place to start. Basic Google search shows that veterans have a higher chance of ending up homeless than the general population, which is something we should do more to prevent. Personally, I think it is our greatest failure as a society that people return home from service without being given the assistance needed to rejoin society or live a normal life. They sacrifice their lives for people who they never met or will ever be thanked by. The least we can do is make sure that the effects of their service are adequately accommodated. The motto is no soldier is left behind, but if they are left out on the street after giving so much to our society, they are being left behind. And this is really unacceptable. Finally, we must also acknowledge that many of the homeless are still viable contributors to our society and our economy. Many just need an opportunity to work and transition back to society. For people without an address, it is hard to find employment. In reality, there are many people who are one paycheck from being in that exact same situation. Just an economic reality for some in our society. Many people are blessed to have people who can take them in during their time of need. Others are not so fortunate. We need to find ways to bring as many as possible back into our economy and afford them a path towards a normal life. I agree. We need to create opportunities to afford a path from homelessness to employment. Even if individuals lack basic skills, there are still services they can do. For instance, can we help expand efforts to increase domestic manufacturing by establishing operations where homeless are able to work and live in facilities that produce materials needed by our economy? Consider how much funds our companies spend on manufacturing overseas with nations that are now our economic and diplomatic enemies. Rather than paying nations we cannot trust, maybe we can channel those funds back within our economy and help those in need at the same time. Part of the reason why labor is offshored is because of minimum wage or cost of employment. Maybe create exemptions to the rule, where the housing provided is calculated into the formula so that they can attain housing and develop skills and one day get back on their feet. These individuals are potentially a pool of untapped potential. We need to start thinking of ideas to help these individuals. Instead of giving them a couple dollars to fund their next liquor or drug purchase. We need to start taking on the big problems in society. Instead of paying illegals to do cheap labor, may consider your local homeless. Maybe. Now let us talk about inflation for a bit. Is inflation really shrinking or is it just growing at a slower rate? 
That is an important question and one that is important if you want to gain real perspective on a major economic problem. Social media can be one big source of rabbit holes filled with equal parts nonsense, entertainment, misinformation, disinformation, insight, hysteria, and mindless rambling. But, sometimes the threads can show conflicting viewpoints clearly based on perspectives not shaped by facts, evidence, and data. The driving force for selecting this topic for discussion was a thread where conservatives claimed inflation was increasing and Biden supporters pushing back that the number is lower than the prior month or the number from this time last month. So which side is correct? Is inflation shrinking, easing, or growing? First, we must understand how the inflation number is calculated. Inflation rates reflect the cost of a select basket of goods and services comparing the total cost of purchasing that mix during the base period against the current or comparison period. So if you read or hear that inflation was 4% year over year, then you conclude that the same mix of goods and services purchased in the same month of the prior year now cost 4% more purchasing this year, showing the general price level went up by 4%. A year from now let us pretend that the new number is 2%. So inflation must be 2% lower than the prior year. 2 is less than 4. Right? So if the same mix of good purchases a year from now is 2% higher than what the current year, are we better off or worse off? Most would say still worse off. Let us consider the trajectory of the data. If the base year was changed to last year and the comparison is next year, what can we assume is the inflation rate for that new period? We know that year-over-year data shows that the first year was an increase of 4% and then another 2%. Therefore, we can reasonably assume that the inflation rate would be 6%. In actuality, the increase would be 6.08%. You can confirm this by multiplying 100 by 1.04, then the resulting 104 by 1.02, and the subtract the 106.08 and the original 100. Applying the same logic in real data, we can confirm that inflation is still growing but at a slower rate of growth. It is not shrinking when you compare the current to the beginning of the actual period. You have to go back to the beginning. Why do some people not really see this? I read an article from a respected business publication that made this same mistake comparing only the year to year not year to the beginning of the event. It is an easy mistake to make because we are preconditioned by our political system to make this mistake. When we hear that budget cuts are enacted, the politicians are using this same logic. Or really a logic. Or political logic. They will say we are cutting 5% from discretionary spending, when they are really just lowering the growth of spending by 5%. Allows you to appear like you are doing something when you are not really. But you are slowing the growth of the bad. Like if you are supposed to lose weight, but you gain weight at a slower rate, you are still not losing weight. You are just slowing the trajectory of growth. The problems that necessitated the need for change are still there. Now, the argument is really what people in contracting would call cost avoidance. Because you are paying less of an increase than you could have been. Kind of an optimistic outlook on what is still a cloudy situation. Or politically, you are kicking the can down the road by buying a little more time with the slowing growth of the bad. So the answer to our inflation question is that inflation is growing at a slower rate of growth. It is not shrinking. Simply the new base year now reflects higher price levels so the problem looks better by comparison. The political argument that we can expect to hear is that inflation is shrinking, which it is not. And that prices will never go back to the norm, which is not completely true when you consider that much of the driver of inflation was the result of poor economic policies. Better policies can help move price levels closer to the norm. Some will argue that inflation growth is normally 2%. Well it normally averages 2%. Some years of growth mixed with some years of decline. But the issue is the sudden increase that reduced the economic condition for many households that might never recover in a timely manner. 
the people who lost their jobs related to shifting economic conditions who may not find the same opportunities as readily available as before. The people who lost retirement funds so near to their retirement age. There is real harm. If you are the politician associated with being the cause of inflation, you will naturally play up the slowing of the growth and shift the scope. If you are the side hoping to exploit the policy failure, it makes sense to focus messaging on the actual situation. For the rest of us, we should understand that inflation is still growing and it is not the time to change any mitigation efforts we may have taken to reduce the effects of inflation. Now, let us bring in the rest of the team for a broader discussion. There is plenty of time between now and when voters have to head to the polls to cast their ballots for the President of the United States. There is plenty of time between now and when states begin the primary season for nominating who will be on that ballot for the presidency. Based on the polls today, Republicans could have a nominee with three indictments and possible convictions. Who still might be a more viable candidate than the Democratic nominee who will be fighting not only the Republican nominee but the forces of gravity and biology. And potentially more baggage as well. Let us start with the Republicans. How reasonable is it for Republicans to change the odds as they currently stand? And how can they do it? As you said, it is still early. Former President Donald Trump has the natural early advantage because he was president. He has a fiercely loyal base. Also, he still enjoys the same advantage he had in 2016. Trump continues to benefit from free media exposure. An angry media that affords him free media exposure every single night. Networks like CNN and MSNBC continue to make him the centerpiece of their coverage. While they may think that is helping to reduce his appeal, the constant exposure helps fuel the sentiment of his base. Maybe they think that will help Democrats in the long run. So, it is not surprising that Trump is enjoying an early advantage at this point. But I think Republican contenders can change the tide. For two reasons. First, I think the field is much stronger this time around than it was in 2016. Secondly, Trump is not running a disciplined campaign to this point and is a weaker candidate than last time. In 2016, Republicans featured around 15 candidates viewed as Republican in name only and one outsider. In an election where both Republicans and Democrats were not happy with the respective establishments, Trump was able to exploit this. He will not be able to this time around. There are candidates who will be able to deliver Trump-like results without the Trump-like behaviors, affording voters an alternative. They will be able to appeal to the electability factor in the general as that will be a major obstacle for a Republican ticket with Trump on it. Secondly, Trump is making the case for returning to office by playing the victim and attacking fellow Republicans rather than making salient arguments against Biden. We can be somewhat sympathetic to the view that there is a politicalization of some of the legal issues he is facing. Elevating misdemeanors to felonies for the sole purpose of trying to prevent a political candidate from running his misconduct. We know that there is bias when it involves Trump. Especially when you have Biden promising to do everything possible to ensure he cannot return to office. But Republicans do not have to be sympathetic to a candidate who makes everything about himself. The election is about how to restore America and lift us out of the spiral of debt, decline, and despair. Especially a candidate that praised disgraced former Democrat New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Republicans and Americans can still get the positive policy approach we want without the erratic behavior. Trump leading in the early polls is not surprising because he was the earliest candidate to announce and the one with the largest national base. As we talked about for the longest time, Trump had many advantages in his pursuit for a return to office. The biggest obstacle would be himself and how he handled the attacks that would come from all angles. The biggest challenge to Trump is pending investigations, indictments, and possible convictions, 
although who knows if there will be pleas, dismissals, or exonerations. All of which has made the former president more popular with a base that delusionally still thinks the election was completely stolen. Now, I do think the situation is much different this time around than in 2016. The last time around he was an outsider and there was no clear alternative in a field that was way too large. This time around, I think many see this as Trump versus Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. While the numbers still currently favor Trump, DeSantis just recently entered the race and both are polling strong against Biden. DeSantis is a formidable opponent. He has been an extremely effective governor of Florida and is appealing across the board. He is definitely presidential material. But we still need to see if he can perform on the national stage. The argument for Trump is that he was president and, for the most part, it was a successful period of time from a policy perspective. Other than COVID, Trump fostered a growing dynamic economy, maintained global peace, constrained China, and expanded opportunities for all Americans. The downside obviously is his erratic behaviors and handling of the early pandemic response. We still have a president with erratic behavior, who also failed with COVID and is missing any sense of policy success. The challenge for the field of Republican candidates will be navigating a path to the nomination in a manner that can reel back in the Trump base. Many of the candidates simply are not ready to be president. DeSantis may be able to overcome this. But I do not think that the field is as robust and prepared as before. There simply is one clear alternative. I am not sure the baggage will be as big of a factor, as we are starting to see similar troubles with Biden as well. So that may neutralize that issue as there is clear political bias involved as well. Whether it is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or former President Donald Trump who navigates out of the Republican primary season, the Democratic nominee will be Joe Biden, unless he decides that he is unable to rerun. The current term of the Biden administration is not going well. The world is fractured. Our economy is stagnant with the only positive news is near misses of catastrophic events like a federal government default. Border issues are returning, requiring states to take matters into their own hands. Now, we continue to see more troubling news around Joe Biden as well. Reports that he might have accepted questionable money. Reports of trouble surrounding his son, Hunter. And he too mishandled classified material. The biggest issue for Joe Biden is Joe Biden. There are legitimate reasons to question whether he should rerun or retire. He clearly is not in capacity during many of his public appearances. The question is should Democrats consider a different option? I do not think anything is humorous in seeing an elderly American politician fall down steps or on the stage of the graduation ceremony for one of our armed forces academies. But it does raise the question of fitness for the highest office in the land. Even if he is truly fit, he has shown that he lacks judgment in the policy prescription to lead America where we need to be. I think the decision to rerun for any political office in America should be based on a real record of success that exceeds points of failure. There are not many areas where you can truly say the Biden team is truly succeeding at. I think we can give him credit for rallying our allies around a response to the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine. But not much has worked since in that regard as the conflict still continues. We should not be in the position we are in economically and that is because of poor economic judgment. The misleading messaging about inflation is troubling as well. Jobs are somewhat stable because companies are concerned about the ability to attract talent. But some are coming to the realization that reductions are needed. The only alternative I think Democrats would have would be California Governor Gavin Newsom, but Californians showed their dislike for their own governor by nearly recalling him not that long ago but clearly he has intentions to one day run for office. 
Joe Biden is not the president America needs and we deserve better. He simply has failed to perform up to anyone's expectations. Our economic, foreign, and domestic policy is failing and there is no reason for Americans to once again double down on failure. I agree that there is no humor in the accidents that occurred. But Biden is another example of Democrat leaders who overstayed their time in politics, which is more of reflective of bad judgment of the electorate. Elected officials should be held to their promises as well as their promises. So let's start with his promise to foster an economy that was to be built up better and equally for all. Rather we have an economy where it is declined for all and where his team wants outcomes based on demographics rather than effort, experience, education, and innovation. Biden promised to restore our reputation on the world stage and return adults to forefront. While we can credit him for rallying our allies in a response, he should have done more before soliders crossed the border. But he is weak at protecting borders. And leaving some of our allies trapped in Afghanistan probably did not garner the goodwill needed or distracted them with a crisis of his creation. Domestically, Biden struggles to maintain a regulated border, rather he is costing many communities billions by ignoring the problem and aiding and abetting violations of our federal immigration law. Border security should not be a partisan issue but a must for any society. Biden has been the Trojan horse for the progressives and Americans are way worse off than we should be at this point. I am not sure Democrats have a viable alternative if they decide that any direction is needed. Many notable candidates are either completely unlikable, inexperienced, or too radical. California Governor Gavin Newsom may be setting the stage for a future run. I think he will evoke a strong negative response as we have seen firsthand, businesses and people flee the golden state of California for greener and safer pastures. Nationalizing policies that breed poverty, income inequality, and homelessness is not the right move either. Finally, there is a real possibility of a rematch of the 2020 election. I am not sure any American voter, Republican, Democrat, or Independent really want to see this. The 2020 election was politically toxic to our society, our system of government, and our well-being. What are your thoughts? Personally, I do not think it will happen. I will put my trust in the hope that Republicans will decide that another direction is needed. I think it is better for Trump to serve maybe as a Republican power broker than actual candidate. But that would require him to actually fund candidates, not just talk about funding candidates. The biggest question is how will Joe Biden campaign this time around? During COVID, there was a reasonable excuse to avoid the public. But that will not be available this time around. What happens if, come 2024, he realizes that this is not a good idea and Democrats lack the time to really evaluate potential candidates? Could DeSantis or Trump face a DNC-appointed nominee? First, I think it would be interesting to see how voters would respond to an appointed, not elected nominee. But no reason to speculate at this point. If Trump becomes the Republican nominee and Biden continues to be committed to running again, then let's have a rematch. People get what they ask for and this is the ballot that the voters ask for. A rematch between Trump and Biden. We must keep in mind that it is not just a factor of not being able to hide in a basement throughout a campaign. But balancing the duties of the presidency while running for re-election as well. He will not be able to hide from the public. He has duties to do at the same time. And he needs to campaign. We do need a spirited contest that hopefully is centered on the issues. But we know that neither Trump nor Biden will do well sticking to the issues. The rematch will be uncomfortable. But maybe we can avoid it. A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. 
Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.